0: Good morning, and may the blessing of the Lord be upon you. I bless you in the name of the Lord. As a matter of fact, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, my soul shall make her boast in the Lord, the humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together, for the Lord is good. Amen. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor reward us according to our iniquities, but as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love toward those who fear Him. And As far as the East is from the West, so far has he removed our sins from us. It just seems appropriate here on October the 9th, 2022, that the redeemed of the Lord just ought to say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Thank you, Pastor Lawrence, for this opportunity to come and see family members I've never met before. Thank you for your anticipated Uh, gospel hospitality. So let's let's sort of um, see if we can't set some mutual expectations for these next few moments as I expound upon the Word of God. I recognize that I'm from that part of the Christian family where the sermon tends to be dialogical, that is to say we talk back to one another, but I don't anticipate foisting my predilections upon you. So uh, while I'm not going to necessarily ask you to say amen, if that's not your custom. I will ask you to look amen. (laughs) So let's practice right now. If you will look at the people next to you, and if you see somebody that's not looking amen, will you raise your hand and point them out so that we can have them escorted out expeditiously? As a matter of fact, I see a lot of young people here. How many young people here are between the ages of like, say, eight and 12? Raise your hand. Eight and 12. I see two young men back there. I, w- I want you to be my amen corner. Come right quick. These two young men right here. Just in case there's people around you that don't look amen, I'm going to pay you to say amen. <laughs> now, I don't know how much man's usually cost here in the Northwest, but well, is $2 enough? Okay, well now let's let's go over you, you take that too. You take that too. Okay. Now let's go over the protocol. So when you see me do like this, you say amen. Okay. You don't have to now. If you if you want to say amen at some other time, that's on you. I've just paid you for two. So when I go like that, what you gonna do? Say amen. Now you gotta do it. Say amen. Amen. Now, wait a minute. You're gonna to have to do better than that. Let's, let's try it again. Say it loud. Amen! Amen! Now, you, you're doing well. Let me hear you. Amen! All right, very good. Let's, let's see what happens. You can take your seats now. I just wanted to do some training in case they have to go someplace else where amen is required as opposed to visual. So, If you'll open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to read verses 22 all the way through 47. I do not apologize now in my old age for reading long passages of Scripture, uh, or what some might consider long passages of Scripture. It's not really that long, but I make no excuses for it because it's the Word of God that transforms us. And more importantly, see now, here you go. I'm not passing out any more money, but if you, <laughs> if you want to, you could say, man, the, the truth of the matter is I want to read this passage because it's such a magnificent passage, and if by chance you don't particularly care for how I preach it, you will have to at least admit it was a great passage, and you can go home and get in the mirror and preach it to your dog on self. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to pick up at verse 22, and then I'm going to read through the end of that chapter, Acts chapter 2, I'm going to pick up at verse 22, and I'll read all the way up until verse 47, and it reads thusly, pardon me, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, please just follow along whatever translation you have in your possession. It says this, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seek one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and saw the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. In many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Today I want to talk about this Jesus, this Jesus. Turns out it wasn't true. I'm I'm glad it wasn't, because when I first heard on the news that an actor had sold his image to an AI company so that once he died, he could still star in movies, I thought it was crazy, but turns out it wasn't true. Bruce Willis did not, in fact, sell the rights to his image to a deep fake studio, despite all the Reports to the contrary. It is true that a deep fake company had taken some of his images to create a commercial that he did not participate in. And this is particularly striking because in March, Bruce Willis's family announced his retirement because he's contracted a disease, aphasia, f- pardon me. It's a language disorder that affects your ability to communicate. And so at first, it seemed like that deep fake rumor was true, but I'm glad it's not. You understand what deep fake technology is, don't you? It's this new technology that is generated by artificial intelligence that takes somebody's image and through manipulation can portray them as saying things they never said and doing things they never did. This is important to us because even though deep fake technology has been used to make politicians as well as artists seem to be doing things that they would never agree to do and it's exaggerated some of their activities and modified sometimes what really happened, the truth is that there's been some deep fake technology used on Jesus Christ for years. And people have portrayed Jesus as saying things he never said, doing things he never did. When I was growing up, it used to be a TV show. Actually, It has been revived. The show was called To Tell the Truth. And basically what it was is that there would be three individuals that would be on the stage and only one of them was the real deal. One of them was authentic, but they would have others up there portraying a part to see if a contestant could spot the real from the fake. I used to love it, because at the end of the show, they said, with the real so-and-so, please stand up. Today, I'm grateful that in this text, we get to see this Jesus, the real Jesus, not the political Jesus of our day or the social Jesus or the ethnic Jesus or the national- nationalistic Jesus. But the real Jesus gets to stand up in the scriptures today. And I want to proclaim him to you because if you're not careful, you'll be bamboozled by deep fake Jesuses. Most people have opinions about Jesus Christ, the church and Christianity, but very few have ever taken the time to investigate what Jesus actually said, what the church actually does and what Christianity actually is. What do you know about Jesus? He's the most famous, most revered, most polarizing personality in history. He's the most quoted and misquoted person of all time. Poets and rappers rhyme about him, artists, portray him. More books have been written about him than anyone else, yet he is recorded as having only written one thing, and that was in the sand. (laughs) More wars have been fought in his name, though he was the Prince of Peace. People claim his support for their cause, but then live lives, promote policies, and create cultures that are diametrically opposed to everything he lived for, promoted, and created. Many call his name, but few are called by his name. Many love his type, but few precious love him. Hollywood adores and abhors him. Politicians misappropriate and misapply his words. Culture's misunderstanding. Even the church writ large often misrepresents. What do you know about him and why does it matter? Listen, this is why it matters. This world is broken. If you don't believe me, open up the newspaper or just look out your window. This brokenness shows up most prominently in our alienation, our alienation from God and from one another and even within ourselves. We're not all together and we can't fix it. If Jesus is just a man or myth, then there's no hope for this broken world. But if he is who the Bible and billions of people across the centuries claim him to be, then you're gonna have to do something with this Jesus. You're gonna have to make a decision. I'm, I'm talking about with this Jesus, the real Jesus. Either he's the savior of the world, the king of all creation, the only one who can reconcile us back to God, or he's a lunatic. It's one or the other. There's no in between. So what's at stake is life and eternity. So I want to say that this Jesus, this crucified and resurrected Christ is the savior of the world and his followers bear witness that he, this Jesus, changes everything. Now, the book opens up with some correctives. I'm talking about this second volume of Luke's two volume set. The very beginning of the book sort of gives some correctives about the real Jesus because the real Jesus did not divorce orthodoxy from orthopraxy like some do today. The the book opens up the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. It it corrects us about this whole political schism where people are using a deep fake Jesus to promote their partisanship because when the disciples were asking about politics, Jesus was talking about things pertaining to the kingdom. And here it is. We drop down in the middle of a sermon. Now, you recognize the beginning of the book, uh, be, pardon me. the beginning of the chapter, the Holy Spirit, the promised endowment of God has come upon the believers. They are clearly articulating the gospel of Jesus Christ in everyone's heart language that happens to be present. Somebody says, these people must be drunk. And Peter gets up and says, no, This is that. You've read the book of Joel and you've read the prophecies he's made about the last days and how God would pour out his spirit on all different types of people. Peter says, this is that. So he takes the opportunity to draw them in. He becomes a focus puller. Do you understand what a focus puller is? If you watch movies, uh, you'll see at the end of the credits, Sometimes they might say focus puller, they might say gaffer. It's the idea there is somebody on set whose only job is to make sure that the main character in a scene is always in focus. They they do their job. Their job is measured in millimeters. They their whole reason for being is to make sure that the main character stays the main character. Peter becomes a focus puller here in his sermon. I want to do the same thing. He puts the attention, puts the focus on, and he says it a few different times, this Jesus, this Jesus. And so in verses 22 through 36, he gives us the content and the crux of the gospel in this first section. He's going to interpret scripture and give us the implications of the resurrection. Notice how he starts out in verse uh, 22 talking about Jesus the Nazarene. He focuses, first of all, on Jesus' humanity. Jesus is not a myth. He was a real man in real time and in real space. Uh, but he was more than just a man because he goes on to say he was accredited by God with miracles or works of power, wonders and signs. Now he's tying that back into, if you still have your Bibles open, he's tying that back into Joel's prophecy because Joel had prophesied in the end times God was going to show himself with wonders and signs and miracles. He's saying that Jesus in his person even fulfilled that and he did it in your midst, just as you yourselves know. It's undeniable accreditation that this Jesus, this One who was fully human, yet accredited by God was delivered over to death by you, by the predetermined and foreknowledge of God. Uh, You nailed him to the cross, but it was God's providence. Notice he points out something that we can never forget about the gospel, and that is it's at the intersection of sovereign providence and human responsibility that God works and brings about that which rescues all of humanity, because in verse 24 it talks about how God raised him up, putting an end to the agony, the pain or pangs of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Why is that true? Because it's not only, let me, don't get ahead of me, it's not only that Jesus died the death that we should die, but he lived the life that we couldn't live. He was fully human and he fully satisfied the requirements of righteousness in that he did nothing wrong. Therefore, he is a suitable sacrifice for us because since he did not sin, when he died, he didn't die for his sins. He died for our sins. That's why it was impossible for death to hold him. Jesus dealt death a death blow. Now, why is that good news? That's great news because death is a monster. It destroys everything and everybody we love. Death is the consequence of sin writ large and our sins writ small. But the good news, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because we have all sinned, and now God has demonstrated his love toward us in the while Christ Came, he took our place. He was put to death so that death would no longer hold us in bondage. The Hebrew writer talks about that, that since the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Christ himself, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through the fear of death who are subject to lifelong slavery. He took the poison we should have had to drink, and he drained it to the bottom. But there's more. Verse 25 through 28, Peter quotes another Old Testament passage, Psalm 16, and he points out that the person in that scripture prophesied that his soul wouldn't be abandoned to death and his body would not undergo decay. In verse 29, he argues this cannot be David, the one who penned that psalm. He couldn't have been talking about himself because, in fact, he died. He was buried, and we can go see his tomb today. But God had sworn and promised that one of David's descendants would occupy his throne forever, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Consequently, what David was really doing in Psalm 6 was looking down the corridors of eternity and prophesying that there would be this Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, who would experience resurrection because death couldn't hold him. Verse 32 gives us the bottom line of this portion of Peter's sermon, and that is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that the Old Testament has been prophesying about. How do we know that? Because God raised him up again, and we are witnesses to it. So far in the sermon, Jesus, the man, is more than a man. He defeated death, and his resurrection fulfills prophecy and God's promise to David. But look at verse 33. The good news gets gooder. Verse 33 says, he's been exalted to the right hand of God. If you look at verse 33, it says, he sits at the right hand of the Father. He receives the promise of the Holy Spirit and passes that gift on to those who respond to him. Peter is saying there on the day of Pentecost that what you see and hear is the fulfillment of all of that. Peter's final argument is that David didn't ascend to heaven, but in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This Jesus, in other words, who was crucified is both Lord and Messiah, the one who controls reigns and super reigns, as well as the one who was promised throughout the Old Testament. Those titles are unified in him. This Jesus is the one who fulfills his own promises. He is the one who is the supply of his own demand. This Jesus was born so we could get rid of the birth pangs of death and this Jesus died so that he could take the sting from death. This Jesus was raised up again so that we could take God at his word. Because this Jesus called the shot. You know, have you ever heard of Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali is one of my favorite athletes and one of the reasons why. He would tell you what round he gonna knock you out in. (laughs) But Jesus is greater than the so-called greatest. This Jesus got up because death had no claim on him since he had not sinned. And this Jesus was raised for our justification. This Jesus is Lord of Lords, but was crucified by godless men so that all godless men could be reconciled back to God. This Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and has given us his spirit as a down payment of future glory. This Jesus stood up because he's the real deal. Death can't hold him, culture can't contain him, time can't constrain him, words can't explain him, and no power can restrain him. In other words, this Jesus is undefeated. He's the undisputed, unified, title-wearing, ultimate heavyweight champion of time and eternity. He's God incarnate, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and enthroned. Now, I'll point all of this out because he's still undefeated. Let me pause from my regularly scheduled sermon to say this, you better stick with a champ that ain't been beat. You you need somebody in your corner that can jump in. I, I don't know if y'all are into wrestling. Have you ever heard of this WWE and WWF? When I was growing up, I used to love tag team wrestling. I don't know if they still have it or not. But the whole point in tag team wrestling is you could be in there. And if your defendant almost gets you down, if you could just get to the corner and tag in your partner, they jump over the rope and they start throwing people around. It's good to have somebody in your corner that's undefeated. And if you're in Christ, You have someone in your corner that you can always tag in. I'm talking about this Jesus. My question is, what do you know about him? And what are you going to do about him? We've been singing about his praise all day long. I've shown you in scripture that this Jesus is the real one. He's not contained by politics, culture, ethnicity. He's the real deal. But what are you going to do about it? Verses 37 through 41, let's see what this crowd did about it. If the first section contains the content and crux of the gospel, verse 37 through 41 gives us the conviction and conversion of the crowd. Peter's given an invitation to salvation and we see the ingathering of the repentant. When Peter's audience heard all of this about this Jesus, they were wounded, pierced, violently agitated. Why? because they knew they were going to have to do something with this Jesus. Having heard the evidence, they knew they were going to have to give a verdict because they were the ones who were going to be judged. So they said, brothers, what shall we do? You see that in verse 37. Peter's response is threefold. Verse 38, he says, repent and be baptized. In verse 40, he says, be saved from this perverse generation. Repent. It's a word that we don't like to use that much anymore. It seems old-fashioned, out of date. But to repent literally means to radically reorient your life and your loyalties. It means to turn from something to something else, to have a change of mind, heart, and affections to the extent to, which, to, to the extent that the trajectory of your life is completely altered. It means to be sorrowful for your rebellion against God and that you forsake and renounce your attitude and actions toward him, and that you run to him. R- repentance is not just a theological concept or intellectual framework. Repentance is a whole person reorientation. A long time ago, when I was in seminary, they first came out with these tennis shoes. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're called Air Jordans. And so, I used to have a commercial, Air Jordan, Air Jordan, Air Jordan, and uh, you would see Air Jordan sailing through the air with his tongue hanging out and legs spread. I said, oh, I want me some Air Jordans. And so, poor seminary student, I saved up what I thought was enough money. I really didn't know how much they cost. I went to the local sporting goods store and there they were, prominently displayed on the back wall, Air Jordans. I was so excited because I thought that if I could just get some Air Jordans, I could be like Mike. And so I slowly approached the back wall. I could smell the leather. I reached out and grabbed a pair of Air Jordans, but then I slipped up and I looked inside. All of a sudden, I decided to repent. (laughs) Why? Because the cost was too high. The price was too great. And so it wasn't just an intellectual ascent. I put those bad boys back where they were. I changed my mind. I changed my attitude. Wait a minute. I changed my position. And I walked out of that store. It's been Chuck's ever since. (laughs) Repentance. Paul says if you understand who this Jesus is, repentance is required and that means a radical reorientation, not just of your thinking, but your affections and the trajectory of your life. But but not just repent. He says you got to be baptized. To be baptized in that culture it meant to be completely identified with, to be branded by. It, It means to have A public display of allegiance to somebody, intimacy, allegiance, and loyalty that avoids public display is suspect. I live up close to the Wisconsin border and we have some people up there I don't particularly care for, they're called cheeseheads. I don't know, uh, (laughs) I hope there are none here. They're Green Bay Packer fans. And what I've noticed is they have Uh, They have an allegiance that's almost otherworldly, a loyalty that in the middle of the winter, up in Wisconsin, people will come out with their green and gold and Republicans and Democrats, liberal and conservative, black and white will sit in the frozen tundra (laughs) to watch the Green Bay Packers. And they don't ask what side of town you live on. Who did you vote for? What do you think about this or that? If you got that green and gold on, wait a minute. White men will cheer a black man on for trying to knock the head off of another white man. (laughs) Because there's something about they've been baptized into the Packers. They completely identify with, they're loyal to, they have their allegiance to the Green Bay Packers. He he says, look, if you're gonna deal with this Jesus, it's not just about reorientation, it's about a radical identification with, a loyalty to, an intimacy with, that does not avoid public display, but is happy. Listen, it's like um, being married. The, The idea is that a wedding ring doesn't make you married, but if you don't publicly wear it, then there's something suspect about the relationship. So if you're here and you claim allegiance to Christ and you haven't been baptized yet, I pray that you will make a decision today to identify completely with him. Let me move on. This Jesus not only forgives, gives, and rescues, but there's something else in this text That I want to get at. It, It talks about this fact that somehow or another there's a way you can tell the real thing. It's in verses 42 through 47 where he gives the communion and commitment of the believers. It's the indoctrination of the saints and the impact of receiving the gospel. If you recognize who the real Jesus is and you repent and are baptized and you're saved from this perverse generation he goes on to say that a new community is born of those who make that commitment it's not based on ethnicity because in the text it was men from every nation it's not based on cultural markers socioeconomic status gender or age But the basis of community in the text is those who received his word. In verse 42 through 47, we see a community that has been born, but a community that has been born into what? That is committed to what? That has an intimacy, an allegiance, a loyalty to what? First of all, it's a loyalty to him, but then there's certain practices you see in verse 42 and moving forward that they committed themselves to sound doctrine my brothers and sisters Can I say something just in passing sound doctrine healthy doctrine the Apostles teaching? Uh, when I was growing up my mother didn't let me eat Any and everywhere if I'd say I want to go over to so-and-so's house. She said well, who are they? Who are their people Where? She would want to know what's going on why? Because my mother is a great cook my wife is a great cook and great cooks don't like to just eat anywhere because they want to know what is that, what are the hygiene practices of that particular cook. I point that out because in this day and age where basically many of us have learned uh, how to access various so-called gospel prognosticators from around the world, it's good to eat at home because you know what's going into the meal because you can see the kitchen. The Bible says that they committed themselves to sound doctrine, to healthy fellowship, to doing life together, to corporate worship, and to communal prayer. Now, is more needed in order to be a healthy Christian? Sure there is, but you cannot be a healthy Christian if you don't have those basics in place sound doctrine what are you feeding on healthy fellowship how are you connecting with the rest of the body corporate worship are you engaged in our corporate acknowledgement of god's grace to us and our visible and vocal expressions of gratitude and adoration and communal prayer as a matter of fact we're going to do that tonight our communal dependence upon our God. That's what they were committed to. Well, what were the results? I'm talking about right now, how can you tell if a group of people are committed to this Jesus that I've been talking talking about? Well, according to verse 43, there was a sense of awe. I do hope you understand that The church is not a social club. We're not a fraternal organization. There's something numinous that happens here that cannot be explained or duplicated just by getting a group of people together, crafting some bylaws and say, we're gonna do some good in the community. We need all of that, but the body of Christ, when we come together, there's an awe that not only takes place in the sanctuary, but according to this text, everyone kept feeling a sense of all and there were signs and wonders Uh, that, that that's a theme that keeps going through this text starting at the first part of Peter's explanation of Joel and then his examination of what Jesus did and then he says that same thing should be characterized by those who are his there is according to verse 44 in your text an unexplainable unity an unexplainable unity where people of different political stripes, people of different ethnicities were yet able to come together not because of their politics, not because of their ethnicity, but despite that, because their commitment was to a person. They were radically generous with one another, according to verse 45. They did not consider themselves to be an island in and of themselves but that whatever God blessed them with was not for them, it was for the rest of the body. If you look at verse 46, you see that this community had a continuous unanimity. It says in verse 46 that they were continuing with one mind. Where? Not just when they gathered collectively, but from house to house, in the neighborhoods. Listen, my brothers and sisters, if your Christianity is relegated to a Sunday morning experience, you must not be connected to this Jesus, because this Jesus shows up not just in the sanctuary, but in the schools, not just in the narthex, but in the neighborhoods. just where we gather collectively, but when our families gather around the family altar, in the temple and in the house, it was a a simple intimacy that they were just sharing with one another and with God, they had a gracious reputation and God provided providential growth. He added to the church Such as should be saved on a daily basis. Notice, however, he did it. It wasn't a program. It wasn't a strategy. It was the fact that there was a group of people that were committed to the real Jesus. And because of that, he was able to be glorified in their midst. Now, let me see if I can't pull all this together and see what it means for us. I started out talking about deep fakes, but do you know that there's a program, uh, it's called Nostalgia, and it's used on this website called My Heritage, where they can take pictures that you present, still pictures, and they'll use AI technology to animate those pictures and make them look almost like they're moving. It's scary, it's kind of weird, but the good news the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only that he's the heavyweight champion of time and eternity, and not only do those who repent and are baptized, not only are they saved from the consequences of sin, but even this perverse generation, and they learn how to live in community with one another, but Jesus uses his church to animate his image in an accurate and precise way. When I was going to school out in California, down at uh, UC Berkeley, when I first moved out there, this is ancient history before cell phones, my Aunt Barbara was supposed to meet me at the airport, Oakland Airport. And uh, I got there and I realized, man, I I hadn't seen my aunt in a long time. I don't know how we're going to connect with one another because we did not designate a particular meeting place in the airport. So I was walking, trying to figure out how I would uh, find my aunt, and all of a sudden, I heard a voice from behind me, Ed, Ed, I turned around, it was my Aunt Barbara. I ran and we hugged, it was a great reunion. I said, Aunt Barbara, how did you know it was me from across the room and my back was turned? She said, that big old Copeland head, i recognize it anywhere. (laughs) your big old head just like your daddy's. I could see how you, was, I could see how you was walking. I could see that big head. I knew that's my brother's son. <laughs> because there's something about when you're the real thing that you, your walk, there's something about the family resemblance that people can even recognize it at a distance. This text is designed to teach us not just something about the real Jesus, but how his real followers ought to reflect his image. And it ought to be in community, ought to be in how we relate to one another in the world outside of us, not just in our creeds, but in our credibility, not just in how we handle the word, but how we handle people. The The real Jesus changes everything about how we live. So why should you commit everything to this Jesus? Well, I told you, he's undefeated. He's conquered death, hell, and the grave. He forgives, gives, and rescues. Our past, present, and future are covered by his sacrifice. He provides real community, and that's what the world is looking for, right? Can I say this just in passing? That's what the world is looking for right now. They're looking for someone who is not separating orthodoxy from orthopraxy, not separating love of God from love of people. They're looking for somebody who gives an accurate picture of the real Jesus. The one who began both to do and teach. The one who's more concerned about the things pertaining to the kingdom than the things down here. The one who provides real community. Our world is alienated. We see it in the opioid crisis. We see it in the constant school shootings. We see it in the partisan polarization. And if there is any hope, it's in this real Jesus. There is one who can do, there is no one who can do what he does. And we owe him our allegiance. It was in 2010. The Seattle Seahawks were not supposed to make it into the playoffs. They were the wild card, and they were playing against the New Orleans Saints. And something unusual happened. They called a play called Power 17. It was a play that their running back, Marshawn Lynch, had been waiting all game for them to play, to call. They called the play, they handed the ball to Marshawn Lynch. He tried to go through the A-gap, that is, he tried to go a particular way that his blockers were designed to block for him, and somehow or another, the hole was clogged up, and so he went another way, and he ran, and he kept on running. And he said, oh, I think I might have something here. He was hemmed in, and he gave somebody a stiff arm. Kept on running, he ran, 67 yards for a touchdown, jumped into the end zone backwards, gave a sign of disrespect to the opposition. But here's what happened. In that stadium, everybody started cheering. They started stomping their feet. They raised such a a ruckus not just Seattle Seahawks fans, but everybody in the stadium, to such an extent, they created an earthquake. It registered on the seismic instruments. Scientists were calling to find out what's going on. There's no fault anywhere near that stadium. But when everybody puts aside their own predilections. When everybody decides to focus on one person who's shown that they're worthy of adoration, when everybody decides to move in the same way, you can move the world. Now, if football fans can create an earthquake because somebody ran a ball What in the world could Christians do? Given the fact that by the preordained plan of God, godless men put to death the very Lord of glory, but because he had committed no sin, death couldn't hold him. He got up again on the third day, ascended unto heaven, sent his Holy Spirit as promised. And now that same Holy Spirit brings about a spirit of unanimity, a spirit, a a, a sense of awe a sense of radical generosity to such an extent, if we could all just focus on this Jesus, we could move the world with every head bowed. Gracious God, our Father, thank you for reminding us that this Jesus that is portrayed in the scripture changes everything. I pray that if there is someone in this building that does not know you in the pardon of their sins, that you would, by your grace, draw them, that you would grant them the gift of repentance, that you would rescue them. And then for those of us who claim to know you, I pray that you would help us to put aside our deadly doing and help us to rely completely, totally on what you've done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and that you would help us to love as you love. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, somebody owes me $4. <laughs>